Hi, I'm Stuart McLeod, co-founder of Carbon. Welcome to the Accounting Leaders Podcast, the show where I go behind the scenes with the world's top accounting leaders. Today, I'm joined by Anton Kalella, CEO of More Global, which is the world's 12th largest accountancy network with over 30,000 people across 113 countries. Anton is a Glasgow native and spent 18 years as a religious teacher before becoming the deputy headmaster at a secondary school in Glasgow. His experience as an educator paved the way for him to become a chief executive at the Institute of Chartered Accountants of Scotland and ultimately the CEO of More Global. It's my pleasure to welcome to the Accounting Leaders podcast, Anton Kalella. Anton, welcome to the Accounting Leaders podcast. How did you get into religious teaching? Did you grow up in a religious household? Well, I did. I mean, I grew up in a single-parent family. My parents divorced when I was nine. My father was was an alcoholic, probably the package that you don't really want your dad to have, but it was what it was. I had a very good mother, and she was a very devout Italian immigrant, and it kind of stuck, but... During my rougher adolescent years, which weren't good years, weren't high-achieving years at school, I had a bit of a religious encounter that had quite a profound effect on me, which for a young guy in a pretty tough environment growing up was quite unusual. And it had such a profound effect that I was going to university. A group of teachers persuaded me to stay at school and persuaded me to apply for a university to do accountancy, even though I wasn't doing academically very well. By a miracle, using a religious term, yes, <laughs> I managed to get into accountancy. But two weeks before the session began, the term began, I phoned admissions and said, I don't want to do this. Uh-huh. Quite unusual now as the global CEO of one of the big accounting firms. I wanted to be a teacher of religious education, and I wanted to go back to the type of places where I grew up and see if I could make a difference. And for 18 years of my life, that's what I did, Hmm. Stuart. And do you want to share what that religious experience was? Well, you know, bizarrely, I very seldom talk about it because I'm very careful about not about the audience and imposing, but I kind of leave it for the audience to ask the question, and you've asked the question, but it was on a a fairly dark, cold January Wednesday evening in Glasgow when I uh, things were not going well in my life, and I ended up in a Catholic church. And it was in that church that I uh, had what could be my encounter with the divine, and it was quite profound. And it was a bit like life was black and white one moment, and all of a sudden it became a bit technicolor. And a kind of level of peace and a kind of focus that I never really had before. I mean, I'm a, I'm a grandfather of five, soon to be six grandchildren, and I love them so much. And when mm. I hug them and embrace them, they know I love them. It's, it's mm. deep. Well, I had that kind of encounter with the divine, and it was so ironic that when I eventually told my mother, she said to me, that was the church that me and your father were married in. Oh, well. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, wow. 
So anyway, that was it. I could go into more detail, but I'll not. This that's probably enough for today. But it was <laughs> sufficient to stick, and it's still stuck. Mm. And after that experience, and and then heading into university and teaching religious education in some, I imagine some uh, schools that you could probably imagine in movies. <laughs> yeah. What was that journey like? I loved it. Every minute of oh, it. Oh, good. Because part of it was I was as tough as they are, the toughest kids and the most cynical kids. I had done it all, so there was nothing new. They couldn't throw anything in me that I hadn't been throwing myself. And I loved it. And it was good to... The thing about religious education, you're not driven by academic results. What mm. you're driven by is an, uh, an engagement with the young people to reflect and learn mm. at the same time. And when you have a group of young people for a whole year, well, it really is, the say, August to June, you can have a quite a profound effect on them through your stories, your life, what you teach them. And... I loved every single minute of it. I mean, there were some hairy moments. And the reality is, when a young person comes to school every day, they bring their whole life with them. Mm. And for some of the, the kids, they brought some of the last 24 hours, which in the case of some of the young people I taught was horrific. And you were creating an environment of peace, kind of calm place, a safe place to have conversations. And it was it never took long before young people were willing to talk about existential matters. It was never far from them. But they also, they loved to rebel. They loved to push against those that were of religious families. You know, would comfortably say, I don't agree with my parents. I don't want to go. Why go? And you'd have big moral debates. But they were great, great places of development of young people. So mm. I loved every minute. I mean, people say to me, Anton, if those were the best, years of your life. What are you doing with a global CEO? Okay. Of an <laughs> that was the next firm? question. <laughs> well, I mean, I didn't go looking for this. My ambition was to be the headmaster of the worst school in Scotland. And I was going to make it the best performance school in Scotland. That was my vision. Mm. And as you can tell, I never realized that vision. The highest, I became the deputy head teacher of a great, tough school in Glasgow. I loved it. Not far from actually where I live just now. And if I'd had a dream, I would have loved to have been a headmaster of that school. But I was seconded by the government during a time of crisis, public sector crisis in Scotland, where the national awarding body for all examinations and certificates in education in Scotland went into systemic meltdown. Mm. Tens of thousands of young people got the wrong exam results. Nobody could get into university. It was probably, for Scotland, post-devolution, it was its biggest crisis. Mm. And people lost confidence in a world-class education system. And I was seconded through another set of bizarre circumstances by the government to go in and help fix it. And within two years, I was made the chief executive. So I had jumped probably five or six rungs of the ladder in very, very quick order. Mm. I mean, I was a young CEO, I think I was only 41, probably the youngest public sector CEO in Scotland, in a very high-profile organization, 
not what I ever dreamt I would be doing, and I discovered I could do it. Organizational change, organizational leadership, cultural change, performance improvement, all of the stuff that we talk about, dynamics of good leadership, I discovered I could do it. And people say to me, I mean, a number of business schools have interviewed me to say, you know, which MBA did you do? And I say to them, have you <laughs> the religious education, religious one? education, <laughs> the divine MBA? It's like, it's like, have you ever taught thirty, sixteen-year-old boys who don't want mm. to be there and don't want to learn? Yeah, you, you learn more in a and day what, there the than big, you will in Harvard. <laughs> and the thing about it is, and here's the key: the kind of human dynamic of organizational leadership is persuading people to do things they don't believe they can do or they don't want to do. It's persuading them to see something bigger about what they're doing and give it a purpose. And that's what I was doing for 18 years as a teacher. All I did was mm. translate it into a bigger classroom. During that time of crisis, well, no, no, go, let's go back to the prior 18 years. Have you got a story or an experience that kind of personifies or sums up those years for you? Well, I was. Yeah. Well, let me take one step forward. Mm. After I had been in the Scottish Qualifications Authority for a number of years and really turned the organization around, I was persuaded to join the Institute of Chartered Accountants of Scotland. There's a the great irony. That's where the journey began. I remember <laughs> standing there the first day it's looking at the scenes. plaque at the door. <laughs> well, you know, all my life I had been a uh, I'd been a teacher. I gave up accounting to become an RE teacher. And here I was, the CEO of the oldest institute of accountants in the world. And not long after I became the CEO, I was at a black tie dinner in Glasgow. And I was at the top table. And this became part of the rhythm of my life. Lots of black tie dinners as the CEO of the institute. There you go. And <laughs> what I was eating my... Well, I was actually waiting for my main course, okay, Stuart? And somebody put the main course in front of me. Entree in America. <laughs> yeah. And all the great and the good are sitting around this table, politicians, business leaders, and me. And I could see a shadow beside me over my right shoulder. And I turned around, and there is this waiter standing there. And all the other waiters had gone, and he was standing there. And I turned around and looked up, and he was looking at me, and he said, Mr. Colella, do you remember me? And in a flash, I said, Michael, how could I forget you? <laughs> it's lovely to see you, Michael. And I said, so tell me, Michael, what you're doing? And he says, this is why I'm standing here. I wanted you to know that I am at university, and I'm studying aeronautical engineering. And I want to thank you for everything you did for me to help <laughs> me get here. I never thought I would ever see you again. And I was not leaving till I get the chance to speak to you. Now, Stuart, let me give you a bit of background about Michael. Michael was abused sexually by three generations of his family <laughs> over many, many years. And when I discovered this Obviously, get the social work and the police involved. And this is a case, you know, if you profile this type of abuse, it leads to fairly difficult mm. lives thereafter. And sadly, we see many instances of this. And I took a care for that boy. And 
we worked hard to provide the support. We loved the boy, all the teachers cared for him, and we helped him to achieve in the midst of it. And here's me sitting in the midst of all these great and good wealth position. To be honest, the only person that mattered to me that night was a boy called Michael, who was now 20 years old, who should have been forgotten, but he wasn't. Mm. And he was studying mm. aeronautical engineering. So you asked me a story that summed it up. Mm. See, when you're a teacher, you change lives. And that's how, why, as the CEO of Moore Global, if Moore Global does not change lives, I'm in the wrong job. Mm. They hired the wrong guy. <laughs> because when I was hired as the global CEO of an accountancy firm, yeah, I bring leadership. I was the chief executive of the Institute of Chartered Accountants for 12 years. I, I know the profession. I know leadership. I know organizational change. I've never worked in a professional services firm, but I know what goes on there. But mm. I was asked to lead this organization and to change it. But I made it very clear from the outset, I didn't come just to make money. Mm. to provide a bigger annual revenue to go up the league tables alone. It was to make a difference because the money does not drive me. That's not the thing that gets you up in the morning. And I believe, Stuart, this take me back to when I started at the Institute of Chartered Accountants. One of the former presidents of the Institute said to me, Anton, you should take a visit to one of the cemeteries in Edinburgh and look up some of these names. And I went there, and there were very big gravestones, very magnificent in the name. But underneath it, it would be the name John McIntyre, Chartered Accountant. <laughs> now, there may not be a lot significant in that, but here's the significance. Mm. The founders, many of the founders of the Institute of Chartered Accountants of Scotland were the ones that funded the building of orphanages, schools, libraries, hospitals. They saw that their benefit through their skills and expertise is something to be shared. Mm. It wasn't only for themselves. Now, granted, some of them were very, very successful and wealthy, mm. but they had a sense of their professional obligation to society. And I believe that is one of the things that the professions in the latter stages of the 21st century have been perhaps lost. Yeah. They've been regulated. Yeah. They become very insular. And that social responsibility has diminished. And one of my purposes when I took the job as CEO of Moore Global was to help Moore Global, a very large, now almost 4 billion global network, not just be successful in accounting terms or professional services terms, but to redefine a modern professional services firm in its contribution, obligation, and responsibility to society. So we're on a mission. Our sixth strategic objective in our plan is, we could, simply it's called social ambition, but the words underneath it say, Moore Global and its young leaders will change the world. Now, I know these, these might sound like delusional statements, but the sentiment is that every firm and all 32,000 people in Moore Global will make a contribution to change the world and lives for good. Mm. And that drives us. Yep. And I think you touched on something there that we pick up on in our travels. And 
you talk about the contribution of, of accounting to society, but also the other way, you know, like I think accountants in generations past were more revered. You know, the profession was more put up on a pedestal. I think that that's sort of been diminished over the last, say, 20 years or so. I don't quite know why. Would you agree with that? I absolutely agree with it. Part of the difficulty, we have been contaminated in some ways by the accounting scandals that have yeah. become very yeah. prominent over yeah. the last number of years. And a perception, whether right or wrong. The Enrons and the and the Madoffs. <laughs> yeah, but mm. a perception, whether right or wrong, that we're quite a greedy profession. Mm. You often talk about the, you know, when you get into the business sections of the papers, the, the thing that they report most often about accounting firm is the revenue of partners. Yeah. Like yeah, four, and this, the number revenue. of sexual harassment <laughs> cases. Yeah, like. but also, but the income, you know, what they earn yeah. becomes the benchmark for everybody who wants to go into yeah. the profession. This is ultimately, and somehow that has changed some perceptions about us. Mm. And I think it's unfortunate because I think there is, I really believe there is a nobility mm. about the accounting and auditing profession in particular, which without them, Society will be less. The capital markets will not function. Yeah, if there's nobody there <laughs> to nobody looking at preserve the, the integrity yeah. of the systems. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Your pension, your savings, yeah. everything. I think that the big four may have, you know, through the nineties and tens, perhaps done the generally some disservice with kind of the predominant reputation of long hours and no pay i mean that that kind of that narrative really took over through that previous generation of graduates and i think they were the sort of the last ones to kind of put up with it combine that with you know the journey from graduate 30 years at the same firm to partner and eventually take over is just is bullshit these days i mean it just does not exist nobody aspires to that kind of lifestyle anymore. It's just not realistic. And I don't know whether the profession has adapted accordingly. Is, it, is that fair, do you think? Well, I think there's different ways of coming at this. Is it desirable for someone to spend their entire career in one firm or one business? That was more normal in the past. People say today, well, young oh. people have seven careers or seven new employers. Doesn't necessarily mean that's a good journey. At Moore, I would like to create an environment where the young people that come and join us spend the rest of their lives in Moore because it's a noble business to work in. It satisfies mm. their aspirations. It provides the remuneration to help them live the lifestyle that they want to live, but also in an environment which is caring, supportive, challenging, and fulfilling. Mm. So I don't believe it, it is unrealistic to actually aspire to create an organization like that. Now, the business model for many of the bigger firms is that they will have losses. Of 50% of their trainees will leave first year after recruitment. Yep. And their business model works on that, will bring new ones in, and these ones will go off and become our future clients. Yep. So that's their business model. I would much prefer to keep them. Yeah. And grow them in the culture and the values. Take less and keep 100% of them. Absolutely. Yeah. The only challenge with that is the traditional partner model 
it provides or does not incentivize, you know, the a younger employee to stay. I mean, there, there is literally no equity in these firms available to employees in their first many years at a firm. And, you know, like yeah. three hours, three hours down the road is Silicon Valley. And like that the perhaps not the reality, but but at least the the opportunity to create equity and, and create wealth in firms out in in companies outside of salary is appealing to the younger generation. And and I can see it in your eyes. You're gonna say, well, you know, what about their contribution back to society? And I get that, but I think that there is a a lack of opportunity to create individual wealth in accounting firms because of the traditional partner models. Now, that's not to say that models don't exist that they could utilise in order to create equity for the entire staff, but I have seen it in one firm and I've talked to probably thousands, if not tens of thousands. Yeah, I mean, you're hitting the, if not the biggest issue for the next number of years in the structure of professional services firms. Mm. I mean, it's sitting alongside the debate about private equity, but I'll come to that separately. Yep. Oh, yeah. We've only got three hours for the podcast, Anton. <laughs> <I know. laughs> what you have is young people who are far more challenging, skeptical, mm. cynical mm. about yep. structure systems and processes. Yeah. And they will not function in an environment where they don't have a voice. Yep. They don't have a role. They don't have a sense of ownership of the business. And yep. I actually think the sustainability of our firms and maintaining a workforce, partnerships are going to have to reflect on what are we creating for the future and attracting mm. the best people. Not all of them will be partners, but all of them are good workers yep. or should be good workers and contribute to the life and culture of the firm. So I think you've got a real challenge here that is not going to go away and in fact is going to come through. Now what we've seen with some of the private equity solutions that have come through recently is mm. private equity the equity has been shared through the firm. Now we're talking about some microscopic equity but equity nonetheless and it's forcing the firms to look at it if they're going to embrace a private equity type ownership it's forcing them to look at who has the equity? Because if people don't have the equity, they'll not stay. And yep. it's not just the next generation of partners. It's those that see the partnership journey way ahead. And if they don't yep. see that, they're going to go somewhere else. And I think we will see some new ownership structures of firms which will challenge the status quo. And I mm. think that has to be welcomed. Yep. We can broaden this bucket, this net, into other aspects of accounting firms that I've always found a bit strange. We've got nearly every employee at Carbon is an owner in one form or another, and you never see that in accounting firms. Well, you know, please text me if, if you find one, <laughs> but you can easily find me. The other thing that I've always, and the partnership models, I don't think align interests in a way that is beneficial to society, employees, customers, and owners. I think there are better ownership arrangements that firms could take on that get better alignment between all the stakeholders, but that's just my view. I don't own a firm and 
fucking the, the industry is better off for that. But the other aspects of accounting I've always found strange is uh, that very few accounting firms, until they get to a reasonable size at least, will never employ salespeople or business development and aspects that focus on growth. What is more global's view of firm growth and its impact on your firms? So my expectation as the global CEO is that all the firms grow. Mm. And if they're not growing, to be able to ask the question in a good way, why not? And there are any number of circumstances that cause a firm not to grow in one particular year. But if they're consistently not growing over a period of time, you have to ask some fundamental questions about that. And what we've got is the traditional firms, founder, next generation of the family continue this. They've built a client base who are very loyal. It's just, it was my father, my grandfather, and so generation after generation stayed with the firm. And that works well till you have Mm. to get new business. Yeah. Till that family relationship or that family client, owner-managed business, becomes a listed company or goes beyond or is acquired. And you go, the bread and butter of our client base has all of a sudden changed and it's crept up on us. How are we going to get new business? And we are not Mm. skilled in business development. We're not natural salespeople, not all of us. And they have a challenge. So we spend a lot of time in more global teaching about business development. We teach it. Thousands Mm. are going through business development training. And it's not just a technique. It's the kind of person you are. It's about the relational Mm. dynamics, the communication dynamics, the building trust, and how to become authentic and all the rest because it's not a natural skill set of many. And the great thing that we're seeing in more of our firms is they're hiring salespeople. They're Mm, hiring business developers. Mm. And the downside of that is they do challenge the status quo and they are quite disruptive in a good way Mm. because the way we communicated, the way we created a profile, because historically – there was a vulgarity almost about marketing a professional services firm, yeah. an accountancy firm. It was not done. <laughs> it was almost unbecoming that you would have to market. It was almost a, a negative mm. reflection of your business. Now, everybody's looking at how are we profiled in social media? What's the persona that's coming across here? So it's not just business developers and training how to sell. How do we project ourselves? How do we define ourselves? And the biggest client in business development, as it happens a lot today, is not the clients uh, per se, the business clients, but the recruiting hmm. graduates. Yep. Yep. Your persona just now that's projected in social media and LinkedIn and your website and all the rest really now is not directed at clients. It has to be directed at those you're trying to recruit because there's not a firm and not an office and we're global just now that's not having recruitment challenges. And that's yeah. not going away anytime soon. So we are fighting over the same talent, and the talent yeah. are in the driving seat. Yeah. So the business development emphasis is good. It, it prompts a cultural change from what might be in the historic practice. But I actually believe it's creating a cultural change that helps a business project itself far better. 
Mm. I think a lot of mm. firms, they're best kept secret. They've got great environment, great culture, but they would never define it as culture. They would never define their values. They would never define purpose because the purpose was always, we're going to do the very best job we can and we're going to look after our clients. Now mm. you've got to see it. You've got to evidence yeah. it because a, a potential graduate coming into your business will have you diced and sliced in 10 minutes <laughs> by an examination yeah. of social media, your website, and your social media profile. And they'll go, yeah. no, nah, I don't want to work for them. Yeah, and and you touched on a few things there. Like at least if talent is a constraint on growth, which it genuinely is across the across the world in the industry at the moment thus looking you know many firms are looking to technology like ours and and many others to sort of supplement or at least you know reduce the manual labor the benefit of projecting the culture and and the offerings of great firms hopefully means that they can, even if they're keeping the same number of clients and perhaps not able to grow as much as they would in terms of, of real client numbers, they can keep the profitable ones and keep the cycle coming through so that the end result is a great firm with great clients, even if it's not growing as much as you would like it because you're resource constrained and the market is constrained in its capacity to deliver graduates. I mean, the numbers are pretty clear at the moment, at least in America, it's one in, one out. One goes to the golf course and one comes out of university or college, as they would say here. <laughs> well, actually, it's worse than that. The demographics are the attrition rate is higher than the recruitment rate. Yeah. And we're producing fewer accounting graduates to produce fewer CPAs in America, but that's happening all over the world. All the accounting departments will get far, far fewer. We're just not bringing yep. them in. So there's a bit of an existential crisis. If it's not, we're not touching it, it's not far away from our fingertips. Mm. And we're going to have to, well, we're doing it just now, not because we have to, because I think it's the right thing to do. You want to create the best working environment uh, possible for the next generation. I, mean, I remember reading this piece recently. We spend one third of our lives at work, mm. entire life, from birth right through to the end. For many people today, that one third of their lives is not necessarily a source of fulfillment, maybe a source mm. of income to provide their bills. Mm. How mm. many people have health issues because of work? Mm. How many marriages have gone because of the pressures of work and the impact of work on domestic life? How many people's lives are not as fulfilled because of what they are experiencing in the workplace. And I really believe that regardless of the recruitment challenge, leaders and employers have an obligation to try and create the best one-third experience for everybody that works for them. Mm. And it's not to go soft on challenge and performance management, but I think it's about creating a culture and a work environment that really allows them to fulfill their potential, that exhausts all the talent that they've got, that they feel I really feel that the best of me is coming to work and going home every day of the week. And I think the organizational dynamics of professional services firms now need to be orientated towards what kind of working environment are we creating? Mm. It's not about putting cakes out on a Friday afternoon or having barista machines, or mm. it is what is it we want to be, mm. not just in the next three months, 
But what do we want to be? What's our contribution to society? What do we want to say to people about why we're doing what we're doing? And the mm-hmm. firms that are doing that just now are the firms that are going to attract the talent. And you might find that some of that talent might just stay. Mm. We see it in, in our firms a lot. Is this, and more and more these days, is, is I want to say concept of purpose, but it is finding purpose in your work. And it's a genuine initiative. It's a genuine framework around which to construct a firm. If you're starting from scratch, not many get that opportunity or reframe your firm around a purpose. And if your purpose is to do the best job you can, that's great. If your purpose is to, you know, help the local restaurants in a town in Scotland to, you know, be the best restaurants that they possibly can be, you know, you you can rally a certain demographic around that purpose. If your purpose is to be the best you know, green carbon-based accountant that you possibly can. You can rally employer, you can rally resources around those purposes. And I think more and more firms are constructing their culture and their ethics and their morals around a purpose to do good. And if you want to, you can frame that as a contribution to society, but it's a two-way street, right? Like your clients benefit, all the stakeholders in in the game benefit from that contribution or from that way of looking at your life's work. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. If you look at it philosophically, if what we do, we do well, they are good in their own right. They are goods. Mm. Good for your people, good for your business, good for your profitability, good for your clients. Yeah, and potentially good for society. But the challenge in here is I actually think the biggest journey is from good to great. Mm. It's the kind of organization that people talk about for generations. I used to work for mm. them. I worked for them. Mm. Mm. I was an employee. I came through. And I think one of the challenges for organizations today is to move from goodness and good and sufficiently good and adequately good to great. Yep. And this is one of the things that I was always preoccupied me as a teacher and afterwards and working with people. There are so much greatness in people. I think one of the responsibilities of leaders is to elicit that greatness, to bring mm. it out, not just in individuals, but in an organization. And if you were saying, asking me the question, well, Anto, what would constitute a great professional services firm today? And over the next 20 years, I would say one that leaves its mark on the communities within which it lives and works Mm. and a legacy of good. I'd say a great firm is one that makes accessible into the profit, makes it very accessible for men and women, young men and women to come in or people to come in to the profession that would historically never have found their way in. Mm. It is an organization and here's the word. And this is, I think, a word that we avoid in conversation, a business conversation, a political conversation, is sacrifice. Mm. What pain are we willing to take for a greater good, a very Mm. great good? How much are we willing to give up our time, our expertise, our money for a greater good in our communities and in society? And I think this is the challenge for organizations, professional services firms. How much are we willing to sacrifice? How much are we willing to put self to the back 
for the purpose of a greater good. And I don't want this to sound like a sermon. <laughs> today we started with religion. You cannot. We're going to finish up with religion. <laughs> well, well, the thing is, well, in the sense that if you're talking about purpose, mm. as we're seeing in greenwashing just now, there will mm. be such a phenomenon, Stuart, as purpose washing. All the articulation of purpose as a means of attracting a next generation yeah. of employee will be yeah. greatly exposed if there's no substance to it. And yeah. the authenticity of it is most evidenced by the sacrifices a business makes for the good of somebody else, often for no financial return. Now, you may say, well, Anton, with all due respect, we're not running charities, we're running businesses. And I get that. But there should be no contradiction between running a highly profitable, effective, successful, great business and one that makes a sacrificial contribution for the good of society. And I don't just mean you have your CSR day once a year. It's something that's consistent, frequent, regular, ongoing, unceasing, built into the DNA of a business, mm. not as an add-on to that business. I was going to say that it's just part of the fabric. <laughs> Yeah. Anton, we could talk for hours. I've loved this. This we <laughs> we have to do this again. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how much of what I said is of any relevance to your podcast, but it's just a bit of a story and a set of reflections. Oh, I don't mind. I've enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> Happy to help anytime, Stuart. Your contribution to not only more global, but uh, the accounting industry in general is significant and appreciated. Congratulations on all your success so far, Anton, and may the industry prosper from your experience for years to come. Thank you, Stuart. I appreciate it. And I appreciate the opportunity. You're a good man. Good conversation. Pleasure, Anton. Have a good evening. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you found this discussion interesting, fun, you'll find lots more to help you run a successful accounting firm at Carbon Magazine. There are more than a thousand free resources there, including guides, articles, templates, webinars, and more. Just head to carbonhq.com resources. I'd also love it if you could leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to this podcast. Let us know you like this session. We'll be able to keep bringing you more guests for you to learn from and get inspired by. Thanks for joining and see you on the next episode of the Accounting Leaders Podcast.